Welcome to the Nature Reliance Podcast, where we explore the history and practical experience of the great outdoors and discover new ways to connect with nature. I'm Craig Cottle, your guide through the fascinating world of natural living and survival skills through experiential education and interviews. Today's episode is brought to you by the Nature Reliance School Online Membership, an immersive online learning experience designed for outdoor enthusiasts just like you. Are you passionate about the outdoors? Do you crave more knowledge about disaster readiness, wilderness survival, bushcraft, tracking, and nature awareness? If so, the Nature Reliance School online membership is your gateway to a community of like-minded individuals, all dedicated to learning and sharing essential outdoor skills. With the Nature Reliance School online membership, you get exclusive access to a wealth of resources, including expert-led tutorials, interactive webinars, and a library of engaging courses, downloadable books, and documents. Whether you're a beginner or an experienced outdoorsman, there's always something new to learn. So don't wait. Click on the link below to join the Nature Reliance School online membership today. Embrace the wilderness, enhance your skills, and become part of a community that values nature as much as you do. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Hey there, and welcome into another episode of the Nature Reliance Media Podcast. I'm Craig Cottle, the director of Nature Reliance School. Very happy to be here with you. Very happy you have joined me on this podcast. Another story from the frontier today. Just go ahead and throw that out at you. I know a lot of people have been asking us about different stories from the frontier, and I've got one for you. It involves several cool dudes from the frontier. You're going to like it. What I've been doing as of late is, man, well, just as a means of updating everybody about Nature Reliance School, I finally got completed with the original content that's going to be my next book. Now I'm going through some heavy, hard editing, if you will, and writing writing an acknowledgments page, writing a thank you page, and and an intro page. That's what's next. And, man, I anguish over those. (laughs) I really anguish over those. When I write them, because, you know, it could be the thing that somebody picks up and reads and goes, yeah, I got, I got to have this book. But interestingly enough, this book is a children's book, which I had never written until now. Very difficult to write. Maybe that's because I find all my books to be difficult to write, except the first one. The first one, even though it was the first book I ever wrote and there was a lot of newness there, that book was rather easy. I basically wrote that one out of my head. The other two that I've written before now. Ultimate Wilderness Gear and Essential Wilderness Navigation that I wrote with Tracy, those required a tremendous amount of research, and this book did too. A lot of research. A whole lot of research. So, happy to have, generally, most of the research completed, so we're on this side of it. But today, what I've been doing while I've been writing is, you know, most people will tell you that anybody that writes should be a good reader, and... If you'd like to read, you could probably be a good writer. Uh, I would suggest that, too. If you'd like to read books, you can probably write as well. Even if it's something that you just write for your own self, I think that's valuable. But with that said, I've been reading a lot about frontiersmen, scouts, and spies, uh, the long hunters, uh, the long knives. A lot of these guys that some of them had legendary status with a lot of that status and story being just made up falsehoods like Daniel Boone. There were other guys that we know very little about. 
And there's a couple women thrown in there. I've got a good story brewing about a, a woman on the frontier that needs to be told. And I'll tell that one on the podcast sometime in the near future as well. But one of the things that I picked up was a book by Ted Franklin Ballou. And the title of the book is The Hunters of Kentucky, A Narrative History of America's First Far West, 1750 to 1792. I have found this book to be really fantastic in that it really covers a lot of the long hunters that we don't know a whole lot about. Some guys that were off into the the uh, shadows, if you will, just like a good scout or spy would when it comes to the storyline of the frontier history. Daniel Boone stepping up front, Simon Kenton being one of the most reliable men on the frontier, as we've talked about a few times here. But in this particular book, although Kenton is mentioned, Daniel Boone's mentioned, those guys are not focused upon really at all. And and the guys like them, the guys that have other books written about them, Simon Gertie and stuff of that nature. What I wanted to do for you today is read a small excerpt from this particular book, and then I'm going to share some of my own thoughts about it from my own experiences, and we'll see where it takes us. So I'm reading, starting on page 116, about halfway down the page. Got a beautiful, beautiful photo of a brown bess on the top of this page. In the middle ground, the Revolutionary War's Western Theater, British allied Indians were the foes, not the Redcoats. Americans warred in forest. There was little campaigning choreographed to European standards and scant maneuvering upon pitched battlefields. Death on the border came by bullets and long knives, tomahawks and war clubs, rarely by a fusillades of sustained rounds of musketry and artillery shell. Those smooth bores, fowlers, smooth rifles, fusils, and the muskets of various sorts probably outnumbered rifles west of the Blue Ridge. It was the rifle gun, able to drop a man at 200 yards, that gave the much-feared sniping rifleman on both sides a tactical and psychological edge. Ordering every man to his tree to fight Indian style on one's own hook, was standard fare in ambuscades where skirmishes were smaller, yet when taken in proportion, were as bloody as skirmishes in the East. Now you understand why I picked this book, don't you? <laughs> it's so good, you all. It is so good. He does a fantastic job of sharing some of the things that have happened on the frontier in a way that just I hadn't read before, and this is it's just really good reading. It's well-researched book. It's well-backed. There's a bibliography page in the back, that, or, or section, <laughs> I should say, that's full of resources to continue your study. And I've picked up a few of those as well and found them online. Don't, hey, before I go any further, don't don't think I've stopped. I'm, I'm reading a lot more. I just want to share a few things. So some of you have been following the rifle build I did last year, and I call it a rifle. It's probably better described as a fowler because it is a smoothbore, meaning it does not have rifling inside the barrel. And if you're not familiar with that, what that means is that firearm, that fowler, if you will, can both shoot ball or a lead bullet as well as shot. You can utilize it as a shotgun too. Mine's a flintlock. That's what a lot of these would have been as well. The reason he brings this up, if you're not familiar with them, is they're probably accurate as a shooting a ball, 
out to about 40, 50 yards at best, at best. Whereas the historied and legendary long rifle, Kentucky long rifle, Pennsylvania long rifle, the Virginia long rifles and all those, those firearms were good, as he mentioned, out to a couple hundred yards in the hands of a capable shooter. And so you've got a pitched battle between guys that are throwing out rocks. Sometimes these fowlers, this is a beautiful thing about a smoothbore. You could cram that thing full of rocks if that's all you had in black powder and shoot it and hurt people with it. In this particular case, though, they're probably shooting some lead. They're probably shooting whatever they can get their hands on in the middle of warfare. Let's carry on. Frontiersmen who specialized in brush fighting, called scouts or spies, honed such skills to a high art an art developed by Captain Robert Rogers during the French and Indian War. Brits adopted Rogers' tactics against Francophile Indians and their Indianesque coureurs de bois, Metsais allies. During the War for Independence, Butler's Rangers acted as the Crown's guerrillas. Frontiersmen served as guerrilla riflemen. In August of 1778, Daniel Boone and five stalwarts raftered the Ohio, smeared bear oil and pigment on their faces, and donning head rags and turbans, attacked Paint Creek Town on the Scioto. They killed one Shawnee. Simon Kenton lifted the scalp. No no surprise there. Kenton, Kenton was the man, dude. Let me tell you. And wounded two others. Stole horses and peltry, then recrossed the Ohio hell-bent for Boonesboro. Such was classic border warfare. Undisciplined, catch-as-catch-can, brutally raw and bloody. Americans fighting Brits and Indians as Indians and Brits and Indians reciprocating in kind. I've been recommending this book to a lot of people, you all. <laughs> and, and you can probably tell why. Man, it's so good. Oh, man, it's so good. Such a rich look at history. Some of the things pointed out in this particular section is, obviously, we learned some of these guerrilla tactics from Native American fighters back in the day. Rogers, Captain Robert Rogers, that is the the uh, genesis. He is the one that came up with uh, Robert's Rules of Ranging, which became basically the genesis of all things United States Army Rangers, if you will. So there are a lot of things that Robert's Rangers did back then that Army Rangers, and actually anybody that does some sort of, of uh, infantryman-type warfare, still do in an environment that might be similar to this. A lot of interesting things. I read a few of these recently for a podcast that came out of the book by uh, Jerry Barker. Jerry Barker wrote another book that's real fantastic along these lines called Some Thoughts and Scouts and Spies. So listen back on that podcast if you haven't listened to it yet. But let's get back into this because this is so good. Daniel Boone was not a typical guerrilla fighter. But his image as the rippinous, roarness, fightinous man on the frontier ever knew stubbornly persists. Boone, an unchurched Quaker by upbringing, possessing a reflective philosophical bent and an even disposition that caused him to avoid a fight until forced on him, he actually admitted to killing three Indians in his adventurous life, had, as one relative put it, little of the war spirit. It was actually his daughter that said that. I'll add that in right now. Yeah, let me go ahead and talk about some things. Boone took great pride in the fact that he didn't kill but very few Native Americans. And he he held that up in high regard, and he stated this numerous times, and a lot of people knew it about him. 
His Quaker upbringing was instrumental in that, in that they were mostly pacifists, so he avoided it for the most part, as most Quakers despised war. But let's read on here about some other folks that are just a tad bit different. Here's a name that I'll mention a lot of times in classes and whatnot that a lot of people haven't read too much about this fella. But Lewis, nicknamed Death Wind Wetzel, and Andrew Poe revealed, or I'm sorry, reveled in their abilities to out-Indian Indians. And in the chase and coup, shooting and reloading on the run, Wetzel, ears bored and silk tassels dangling from each lobe, taunted his prey by growing his hair down to his calves and keeping it clubbed in two tight plates tied with ribbon. A pair of greasy, raven-hued trophies that went uncollected. Many a time, Witzel returned from the trail silent and taciturn, his dark linen hunting shirt stained with gore, dripping scalps hitched to his sash. It was blood sport. Bluff and bravado rewarded with scalp, bounties, and cash from optioning off booty, rife with glory and exhilaration from hunting the ultimate prey. Captain Sam Brady and his boys, and Lou Wetzel was one of them, were the best at the lethal game. Yeah, Lewis Wetzel. I'll, I'll mention Lewis Wetzel uh, numerous times throughout class and that this man was, he was, I mean, well, I mean, with a nickname like Deathwind, come on. He had a reputation and he knew what it was and he enjoyed it. He was a warrior. Uh, he was there to do what it was that warriors do. An interesting fella. Captain Sam Brady was commander of several of these men that were like Lewis Wetzel. And these guys were absolutely ruthless in what it was that they were tasked to do. Although they were not the types to necessarily just indiscriminately go out and kill people for the heck of it. I'm sure they did at times. But it wasn't a common practice. But when it was time to do some warring, these boys were ready to war. And Lou Wetzel was one of the best. We'll be back after a quick break. Hey guys and gals, a quick break in our episode to talk about a game changer in outdoor cooking, the Fire Maple Backpacking and Camping Stove System. Whether you're hiking, fishing, or even prepping for emergencies, this portable pot and jet burner is a must-have in your gear. Best part? It's nearly half the price of a comparable jet boil stove system. Thanks to its leading heat exchange technology, you'll experience reduced boiling times by up to 30% compared to traditional stoves, even in windy conditions. That means more time enjoying the outdoors and less time cooking. Are you ready to upgrade your outdoor cooking game? Click the link in the description now to grab yours. Trust me, your outdoor adventures will never be the same. Let's read on. Old John Cuppy, the last of Brady's men to die, remembered his captain as a tireless six-footer of lean, raw-boned frame, blue eyes, and shoulder-length black hair. Brady was tall, large, with muscles of steel. When he ran, he appeared to fly over obstacles and never appeared fatigued. He could throw a tomahawk straighter and further than anyone I knew. After surviving Valley Forge, Princeton, and the Paoli Massacre, Sam Brady put Fort Pitt under his protectorate and made the region his personal war zone, and keeping open the fork of the Ohio, Monongahela, and Allegheny became his quest. 
so as you might guess, Fort Pitt, if you're not familiar with history, Fort Pitt is what we now call Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And that was, man, that was a ripe place for history right there. You Pennsylvania folks that might be listening into this podcast, you should mm, thrust out your chest a little bit because, man, that was a rough part of the world for quite some time. And there were a lot of really good men that came out of Pennsylvania. A good friend of mine, uh, Ken Galbraith, who has been part of several man tracking classes that I've attended uh, under the leadership of Mike Hull and Cornelius Nash, two two great man tracking instructors. Ken was always there, not necessarily leading the class, but was leading portions of the class. Always a nice guy to have around. He just He's just one of those personalities that's bigger than life. He always called that part of the world Pennsylvania, right? <laughs> and I and I always love that. And you may have heard that before too. But he was the one that would just always talk about Pennsylvania and Kentucky being one and the same. For the reasonings that we're describing here, this author is describing in this book, they are one and the same. They were full of just fine men, fine women, some of the greatest natural resources on planet Earth. This part of the world being protected by people like Brady. Come on. There's a reason it's a wonderful place because men did what men did back then. Let's read on. Brady trained his men as he trained himself, building camaraderie and keeping his troops pert and fit for the trail. A tough cadre of three-score crackshot spies able to suffer privation without grumbling. Spies, recalled Cuppy, often practiced before going on a scout, shooting at a mark, throwing their tomahawks, and sticking them in a tree at two or three rods and jumping over fences. <laughs> I gotta stop right there. Hey, here we go. Hang on. Now, you all know what I did. <laughs> I had to, I had to, because I, I can't remember how long a rod is. But a rod, let, let's look at this real quick. Okay, let me, I'm using my Google, my Google formula here to figure this out. One rod is 16.5 feet. So these guys are throwing tomahawks up to three rods, which is 50 feet and sticking them. <laughs> oh, man, that's fantastic. Uh, we throw tomahawks, well, we used to throw tomahawks a lot in classes, and we haven't done it for a while, and we're going to change that in 2021. So if you're coming to a class during downtime, trust me, there's going to be some tomahawk throwing, all right? So, and we're going to, I'm telling you right now, now that we've got this measurement here, we're going to be setting one up at 50 foot to see who the, who the real out and the who the real spies are 50 feet that's a long way you all to be throwing a tomahawk let's look back at the test or let's look back at the text a spy's pay was six shillings and three pence per diem but it beat army pay and conditions were better though spies scouted in cold and heat and during snakes and mosquitoes in cold weather we would kindle a fire to lay down by taking off the moccasins and drying them off and in warm weather, sometimes a small fire to raise smoke for the night to drive off gnats. Wild meat was tolerably finer than hog and hominy army rations and hard biscuit, salt pork, and tainted beef from Fort Pitt's commissary. Sometimes we took along wheat bread and bacon and flour to make ash cakes, and sometimes chocolate, and could always get venison, turkeys, and sometimes bear beet, but never any parched cornmeal. Eschewing regimental coats, waistcoats, and breeches worn by enlisted men, Brady, observed Cuppy, insisted that his charge dress in part Indian, part white, a versatile blend of woodland wear. 
So for those of you listening out there that do period correct reenacting, you know what these words mean. But if you're not, then you might be new to them. And I'm going to share what was said here. They talked about wearing waistcoats. This is like a waistcoat, maybe even like a like a vest. Uh, if you've seen, I've done a couple of photo shoots in this type of clothing. And uh, I'll try to find one of them, one of those photos for you to share as the photo for this podcast. Also, the breeches are basically the little short pants that these dudes would wear. These pants would go down from the waist down to about just past the knee. And they would have long socks that were below that and then moccasins on, on their feet. So that's what they were wearing. But here's a statement about that. Spy dress, a handkerchief tied around the spy's head of any color, sometimes a capot, which is basically shorter than a hunting shirt, a little short shirt, of cloth or a hunting shirt and moccasins and thick, loose woolen leggings reaching above the knee, so thick that a rattlesnake could not penetrate through with their fangs. <laughs> That's pretty cool. One lone ranger wore war paint and a coonskin cap topped with hawk feather. Leggings of a wool or deflected pit viper vangs, but a timber rattler struck Thomas Eddington, Thomas Eddington during a sortie into the Tuscaloharas River. His woolen leggings having parted and down on that leg left it exposed. Brady called off the chase. With two ponies, some hickory saplings, and a blanket, he rooked up a horse litter to get Edgington, much suffering from the bite, to Fort Pitt for treatment. Three months later, Edgington resumed his place with Brady on his next mission. Indian seized the ill-fated man, and he spent two years as a Shawnee captive. Now, let's talk about that for briefly. Uh, a lot of these guys, when they would be captured by Native Americans, Shawnee were pretty uh, they were pretty tough warriors, obviously, themselves. And so there would be times where they would take captives and they would abuse them. They would run them through the gauntlets. Simon Kenton is absolutely famous for running the gauntlets in the way that he did. And if you haven't read that history, you should. And if not, then I'll probably do a podcast on how many times he ran the gauntlets. I can't even keep exactly in mind how many times he did it. It's incredible. Sometimes they would keep them captive. And there were a lot of people, think about Simon Gertie for one, and I've been researching him, be sharing with him, about him soon too. But one of the things that happened often was that they would be adopted into the tribe who had captured them. Boone was one of these. He was given a name, Sheltoe. Uh, some people say Sheltoe. Uh, Sheltoe. Several different ways. If you ask a Shawnee, I've heard three different Shawnees say it three different ways. So I don't know how to say it, actually. But one of the things that happens is that some of these frontiersmen, these scouts and spies, if they were taken in as an adoptive person in tribe, some of them would just stay because they like that life better. It was definitely an interesting period of time, that's for sure. Let's read on here. General Mad Anthony Wayne, that's where we get the name Fort Wayne, Indiana, by the way, if you weren't aware, in April 1793 employed Sam Brady, John Cuppy, and six scouts, who I'm sure Deathwind Wetzel was one of them, who descended the Ohio in a keelboat with 100 regulars. On a dare, Captain Brady challenged Wayne's army to a shooting match. Wayne, much amused at the audacity of the frontiersmen, offered a keg of whiskey to the winning side. The mark was a piece of white paper the size of a silver dollar placed on a tree 60 paces away. Shots were to be fired offhand. Wayne's regulars blazed away. 
Out of 100 musket rounds, one nicked the mark. Imagine, this is, if it's this many paces, 60 paces away, that's going to be about, you know, it's going to be about 60 yards. That's kind of beyond the reach of a smoothbore. Keep that in mind. Brady, and that's why they were terrible shots, by the way. Terrible. Uh, they Somebody just nicking it, that's that's pretty good and it's good fortune. I'll say that. Brady and his riflemen checked their pieces and fired. Each man hit the mark, save one, and his ball hit right beside it. Hezekiah Buki, a master trick shooter, stuck a knife with a point in on the under limb of the tree so the edge of the blade was facing him and fired at 30 paces offhand and split the ball on the edge of the knife. After Buki's exhibition, Wayne's men gave it up. The keg staved in, Brady's men commenced to dipping in their cups, becoming quite merry on their grog. Such was guerrilla warfare in America's first far west. <laughs> Am I wrong here, you all? Is this just not one of the coolest books ever? Yeah, you need to pick it up. Let me refresh your memory on this. The Hunters of Kentucky, a narrative history of America's first far west, 1750 to 1792, written by Ted Franklin Ballou. We'll definitely have a link for it in the description, so check this out. I'm sure I'll be reading some more stuff from this. It's $24.95 from Stackpole Books, and uh, we'll have an Amazon link for you. If you pick up an Amazon link, anything that we throw up there, we'll get a couple of pennies from it, so check it out. I hope you like it. If it interests you, if it doesn't, then just hang on to the podcast, because I'm telling you right now, there's going to be a whole lot more of this coming your way. I love this stuff. This has been Craig Cottle, Director of Nature Reliance School. Hope you got some enrichment, some education, maybe enter some entertainment from this podcast. Please do what you can to share it with others. Put it up on your social media. Send somebody a text. Send somebody an email. Say, check this out. This is great history. This is good stuff. And we really appreciate it. As with all things Nature Reliance School, we hope you join for a class soon. Jump in so you can learn. Hey, you can learn how to do these things too. Come on, join in. Let's learn together. That wraps up another fantastic episode of the Nature Reliance Podcast. I hope today's journey has inspired you to explore and connect with the natural world in new and exciting ways. Before I say goodbye, remember to check out the Nature Reliance School online membership. If today's episode sparked your interest in wilderness skills and outdoor adventures, this online community is the perfect place for you to start or continue your journey. You can currently sign up for a year for only $99 and get two months for free. Click the link below to discover a world of expert-led courses, engaging content, and a vibrant community eager to share their knowledge and experiences. Whether you're starting your outdoor journey or looking to deepen your existing skills, the Nature Reliance School online membership is here to guide you. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe for more adventures and share this podcast with your fellow nature enthusiasts. Until next time, come on, join in. Let's learn together.